It seems all too common for us to take God lightly in our worship today. We tend to trivialize His greatness and disregard His holiness. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered, nations-minded resources at our website, Radical.net. When today's message from Malachi chapter 1, David Platt encourages us to listen and respond to God's indictment of the worship of His people centuries ago. Those who are in Christ should experience God's greatness and reflect His holiness. As we do this, we will accomplish the purpose God has for us. So here's Pastor David Platt with a sermon titled, Make the Most of Your Worship, from Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. Good morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to open with me to Malachi chapter 1. In case you haven't been to Malachi in a while, feel free to use your table of contents, or maybe the easiest way to find it is go to the New Testament, Matthew, and just take a hard left, and right at the end of the Old Testament, you'll find Malachi chapter 1. We ended last year talking about how we as a church, the church of Brook Hills, we exist to glorify Christ by making disciples of all nations. And we looked at each component of that phrase, we glorify Christ by making disciples of all nations. And we talked about how if we do anything well, we want to worship well in a way that brings a great glory to Christ. And we want to worship in a way that fuels small groups. We've seen the importance in God's word small groups that are making disciples. And we've seen, we've realized, experienced the importance of doing that in all nations through short-term missions. And by the way, as a side note, two weeks from today, we'll have trip dates and locations and all the information as best as we can at this point. Our team has been working really hard, feverishly on getting that to you. And so two weeks from today, we're going to have as much as possible of that to put in front of you as you pray about, or you or you and your family going to be involved in short-term missions. We've talked about worship gatherings, small groups, and short-term missions, and we want to give ourselves to worship the the glorifies Christ, making disciples in small groups, and doing that in all nations through short-term missions, and praying that God would make us a church that he uses to accomplish the Great Commission. And so what I want us to do for the first three weeks of this year, this picture of resolve, I want us to look at what it means to resolve to make our worship count Resolve to make our relationships count next week, and then two weeks from today, resolve to make our lives count. We're going to start with our worship, which I believe is fundamental, probably more important than anything else we will talk about this entire year, is the picture we're going to see today. I get in the mail every week magazines and books that people send me on how to grow the church. All kinds of articles on how to be innovative, how to advance numbers quickly, how to expand fast, all of these things about how to grow the church. A lot of professionals who have a lot of advice on how to grow the church. I'm convinced that the greatest need in the church is not professionals. I think the greatest need is a fresh perspective of the greatness of God and his glory and his majesty. I think maybe one of the reasons we are very dependent on 
professional church growth. It's because we're trying to resurrect that which is dead and can only be made alive by the glory of God. And so I want us this morning to begin this year with a picture of the glory of God. And I want to ask every single person in this room, do you love his glory? Do you long for God? Does your soul yearn for him? Do you cry out for him day and night? If we miss the glory of God, we miss the whole point. And so I want us to get a glimpse of worship that counts, worship that honors the glory of God by actually looking at a passage of scripture and a picture of worship that didn't count, a people that had missed the point of worship. Malachi, 450 BC approximately, he's speaking to the people of God on behalf of God, and he's talking about their worship, especially here in Malachi chapter one. He's speaking to the priests who lead in the worship. And Old Testament religious system, worship system, just to remind you how this whole thing worked, is people would bring sacrifices to the temple, and they would offer those sacrifices on the altar. The priests would lead in that, and this is how they would make atonement for, they would cover over their sin, how they would worship God through bringing these sacrifices. In the middle of that system, God says these words. I just want you to imagine being a priest, leading in this worship religious system, and hearing these words from God. Malachi 1, verse 6, we'll read through the end of the chapter. Listen to this. Imagine, put yourself in their shoes. God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? This is when you learn to stop asking God's questions and just listen to what he's saying. He says, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it, By saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great King, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. What an indictment of their worship. Don't miss it. It is possible to engross your life 
and the worship of God and yet in the process defile the very name of God. It is possible to come together for worship and insult God. And there is a kind of worship that God says it would be better if you closed the door and stayed home instead of coming together. If that is the case, then every single one of us in this room who is gathered together for worship this morning should lift up our heads and listen in to the kind of worship that causes God to say, shut your doors and go home. It is useless. And so I want to show you, I want to show us as a faith family three characteristics of their worship in Malachi chapter one that I believe are frighteningly applicable to much of contemporary worship. First, the people who didn't make worship count, they trivialized the greatness of God. They trivialized his greatness. From the very beginning, God speaks to them and he begins talking about how they had shown contempt for his name. I want to take you just on a little tour in Malachi in this short book. And there are numerous times, I think 10 different times, where God talks about the greatness of his name and revering his name. And I want you to circle them with me. Look in verse six at the very end, close to the end. It says, it is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. And then he says it a second time. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Let me encourage you to circle name in both those instances in verse six. Then you get over to verse 11. And he uses it three times. He says, my name, circle it there, my name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Then you get down to verse 14, the end of that verse. He says, I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So numerous times in these verses we just read. Then you get to chapter two, verse two. Listen to what God says. If you do not listen, if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Same thing over at the end of verse five. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence and he revered me and stood in awe of my, what? Stood in awe of my name. Get over to chapter three. Show you two more. Chapter three, verse 16. Very end, look at the last half of verse 16. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Then you get to chapter four, last chapter in Malachi. You get to verse two. He says, but for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. 10 different times in the book of Malachi, God is talking about reverence, respect, and honor that is due his name. Apparently, God is very concerned with the glory of his name. And apparently the priests had lost concern for the glory of God's name. He looks at them and says, you show contempt for my name. They say, how have we done that? We've never blasphemed your name. We don't show contempt for your name. Give us proof, they say to God. We would never say that we defile your name. And God looks at them and says, you're right. Instead, you say it with your life every day. You, verse 13, you go past 
the table that is dedicated to my worship, and you sniff at it contemptuously with disdain. They had just enough religion to think that they were doing the right thing while the reality was they were defiling the very name of the one they claimed to worship. Is it possible in the biblical South to have just enough religion in Birmingham, Alabama, to have just enough religion to get by with religious activity and never once realize that we are actually defiling the name of God with the way we are worshiping? Well, we would never say that. And he says, you say it with your life every day. No matter how much religious activity you have, it cannot come up, cover up for the idols of this world that you worship day in and day out. And so God gives them a picture of his greatness here. And I want you to see four characteristics of God that we see even just in verse six. One characteristic, he is the author of our lives. He begins by using this analogy of father and son, master and servant. And we've seen this picture of God as Father. When we studied Luke chapter 11 in prayer there last year, we saw that God as Father always is a picture of two facets. This is, this is extra, no extra charge here, but two facets of God as Father. It's a picture of reverence for God and relationship with God. As a son with his father, I know my own dad. Him and mom brought me into this world. They knew me better than anybody else. They or the source of provision. Dad was the source of strength and comfort. He was an authority figure in my life. He looked at me the right way and I would shape up just like that. He had that kind of authority. There was a reverence for my dad. And that's a picture here. Just as a son respects the authority of his father, a good father, where is the honor and respect due me as father? I am the author of your life. God is saying, I brought you into this world. And every good thing you have is because of me. Ladies and gentlemen, I remind you this morning that every breath you breathe in this room, you breathe because God gives it to you. And your heart is beating at this very moment as you sit in that seat because God is fueling it with its rhythm and power. Every good thing you have is not because of your hard work and your great skill and your expertise. Every good thing you have is because God has chosen to give you those good things. Even those people in this room who hate God. This passage is saying every good thing in your life comes from the very one that you hate. He is the author of it all. Not only the author of our lives, reverence, but the lover of our souls, relationship. Father and a son that God would use this picture to describe his relationship with his people. There's no question over the last 10 or 11 months, for the first time I have realized what it really means to love a child and to look into the faces of my two precious sons. Precious most of the time, but precious sons. <laughs> and to experience a love that, that I had only heard about before. And now, I have in my heart toward these two little guys. Oh, that we 
would feel the magnitude of a God who calls us his sons and daughters, who looks at us as the lover of our souls, the author of our lives, the lover of our souls. Then he goes on to this Analogy of a master and servant. He is the master. He is the third, the Lord of all creation. He is the master of everything. The Lord of everything. Everything belongs to God. Everything works under the sovereignty of God, the divine leadership and providence of God. Every square foot in Birmingham, Alabama belongs to God. Every mountain is his, every hill is his, every tree you see outside belongs to him, every bird that is flying right now is flying in obedience to God. Everything belongs to him. He is the Lord of all creation. It's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25 and 26. To whom will you compare me, says the Holy One, or who is my equal? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Think about our galaxy. Our galaxy alone, one of a hundreds of millions such galaxies. And one star in our galaxy, a modest star called the sun that burns at a mere 6,000 degrees centigrade and travels at a smooth 150 miles per second. It's a modest star in our galaxy. And there are 100 billion other stars in our galaxy on top of all of these other galaxies. That's 100 billions, millions of stars. And God, the God that is worshipped in this room, brings them out one by one. And he calls them each by name. Bob. And Mary and Z14957. <laughs> Our God calls the stars by name. He is the Lord of all creation. And fourth, He is the King of all glory. The title for God that is used all throughout these verses we just read, I don't know if you noticed it, but it said it over and over and over again. The Lord Almighty. Some of your translations probably say the Lord of hosts. Underline it every time you see it with me. It's all over this passage. Look in the middle of verse six. If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the who? Lord Almighty. Underline it there. Then you get down to the end of verse eight. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Underline it there. End of verse nine. Says the Lord Almighty. End of Verse 10, I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering of your hands. From the end of verse 11, says the Lord Almighty. End of verse 13, says the Lord Almighty. End of verse 14, for I am great king, says the Lord Almighty. God wants, wants to make it very clear who's speaking here. Over and over again, this is what the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts says. This is the name of God. We see it all throughout different places in the Old Testament. This picture of him being the Lord of hosts. Hosts, a word that describes at some points armies, at other points angels. The Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, who millions of angels do his bidding. And get the picture here. 
the priests, the people of God, had such a small view of God that they would bring this God, the author of their lives, the lover of their souls, the Lord of all creation who calls the stars by name and the king of all glory, the Lord of hosts, and they're bringing him mangy, cheap sacrifices. What a low view of God then and a low view of God that prevails today. So many in our culture, even in our church culture, that have this idea of God as a beggar on the side of the road with a tin cup, and every once in a while we throw him a coin, which after all is better than what most people do in our culture. Ladies and gentlemen, God is not poor. At this very moment, right now, there are thousands upon thousands, innumerable, flaming creatures whose beauty is so great that if one of them were in this room, it would all strike us down by its beauty. And he is surrounded right now at this moment by innumerable angels who are singing his praise constantly and doing his bidding constantly. He has no need of us. He does not need your worship, God says in Malachi chapter one. He does not need our worship. Tozer said it best. He said, if every man on earth became blind, it would not diminish the glory of the sun and the moon and the stars. And if every person on earth turned atheist, it would not diminish the glory of God. He does not need your mangy, half-hearted sacrifices. Acts chapter 17, verse 25. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Listen to what he says in Psalm 50. I love this. I will accept no bull from your house nor a goat from your fields for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the air and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all that is in it is mine, God says. Ladies and gentlemen, he does not need our worship today. He does not need us to throw him a coin. He is glorious regardless of whether or not we worship. Worship is a privilege. The highest of privileges. And yet, in Malachi 1, and in contemporary worship, we have such a dangerous tendency to grow nonchalant with this God. Apathetic with this God, such that when we gather together for worship, all we're thinking about is games we're going to watch and things we're going to do. And we cross our arms with our cold hearts as we listen to music about his greatness, we cannot be a people who are nonchalant with this God. There is no need to trivialize his greatness. It would be better to close the doors and stay home. Church at Brook Hills, fall on your face before the greatness of this God and give him the glory and the honor that is due his name alone. Worship doesn't count, trivializes its greatness. And God says, close the doors and go home. Second, worship that doesn't count 
disregards his holiness. They disregarded his holiness. Now, we have this indictment from God and they, they start responding, asking God questions. Well, prove the case. How have we done that? How have we done this? This is bold. They're daring God to spell out their sin. What have we done wrong? And God says, look at your sacrifices. Look at the sacrifices you bring. Now, sacrifices, this picture, and we talked about it, bring animals to the temple, and this would be a form of worship. This was a huge picture from cover to cover in the Old Testament. And it was really setting the stage for the whole picture of Christ as our sacrifice in the New Testament. I want us to break down what was going on here, disregarding the holiness of God in a few different ways. First, I want you to see that the priests and the people of God here in Malachi had traded in the word of God for the wisdom of the world. They traded in the word of God for the wisdom of the world. And I want to show that to you. Here they are in Malachi chapter one, giving sacrifices that are blind or crippled or diseased. Now hold your place here with me and go back to the book of Leviticus. It is the third book in the Bible. Leviticus chapter 22. And I want you to see what the word of God said. We're looking at this picture, disregarding his holiness. They traded in the word of God for the wisdom of the world. Go to Leviticus chapter 22 and this is a reminder that whatever we read in the prophets, guys like Malachi or Isaiah or Jeremiah, as these guys were talking, they were not bringing new stuff to the table. They were looking back to the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the picture of the law there and bringing it to bear on their life in 450 BC. And so you go back to Leviticus chapter 22 and God said this. This is when God was establishing this whole picture of sacrifice. And he said, verse one, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, they were the Levites, the priests, to treat with respect the sacred offerings the Israelites consecrate to me so that they will not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. In other words, translate, you will profane my holy name if you don't treat these sacred offerings with respect. And then he begins to delineate how that looks. And you get over to verse 17, skip over there with me, and God says to Moses, speak to Aaron and his son, speak to the priests and to all the Israelites and say to them, if any of you, either an Israelite or an alien living in Israel, presents a gift for a burnt offering to the Lord, either to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering, you must present a male without defect from the cattle, sheep, or goats, in order that may be accepted on your behalf. Do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. When anyone brings from the herd or flock a fellowship offering from the Lord to fulfill a special vow or as a free will offering, it must be without defect or blemish to be acceptable. Do not offer to the Lord the blind the injured or the maimed. Does this sound familiar? Don't offer those things to God or anything with warts or festering or running sores. It just starts to get a little graphic. Do not place any of these on the altar as an offering made to the Lord by fire. And then you get to the very end of this chapter over in verse 31 and God sums it up and he says, keep my commands and follow them. I am the Lord. Do not profane my holy name. I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who makes you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Do not defame my name by bringing these kinds of sacrifices. Now that is pretty point blank clear. There's not room to say, well, it depends on how you interpret blind or depends on how you look at diseased. No, without defect. 
It's very clear in Leviticus chapter 22. You come to Malachi and the situation is this. You've got people who have different animals and those animals oftentimes are their livelihood. And so you've got people who say, all right, if I want to be successful in my family, if I want to be successful in business, then I want to maximize my best animals. And so I'm going to keep them. And look, I can do kind of a best of both worlds thing. I can take this animal over here that's not going to sell well, this blind animal or injured animal that's really no use to me anymore. I can take that and I still give my offering, but I get successful and I have good livelihood for my family. You see what they've done here. They've just traded in the word of God for the wisdom of the world and the compromise worked. Everybody was happy. We gave our offerings. We lived well. Only problem is God was not happy because the word had been compromised. The people of God were following the wisdom of the world instead. Now, I'm not in any way saying that there is a direct parallel between that picture of worship and our picture of worship today. But I do want to ask this question. Do you think it is possible that in worship in our church, we are becoming a people that are trading in the word of God for the wisdom of this world? I think it is not only possible, I think it is probable across congregations in this country. You don't have to look very far to find this last week one religious leader coming out with new prophecies over what's going to happen in the next year. This is going to happen, this is going to happen, and oh yeah, that didn't happen last year, but there's a reason for that, even though I said it was going to happen. You look at the best-selling Christian books, and you will find all about your best life now. You will not find much of the Word of God there, though. And ladies and gentlemen, our greatest need is not our best life now. Our greatest need is to engage the word of God now and to see the greatness of God now and to receive the mercy of God now and to fear the wrath of God now and turn to the glory of God now. That is our greatest need. And that happens through his word. His word was put on the shelf for good advice from the world in Malachi chapter one and in 21st century worship. God, help us not to trade in your word for the wisdom of the world. I, I hesitate to even say that because I, if I can just be completely honest, am overwhelmed by the task that is before me this morning, every Sunday morning, but especially this morning in a text like this, I am not able, worthy to represent this God. I don't comprehend the magnitude of his greatness. And I'm supposed to be his spokesman? That brings me to my face all week long and all morning long and in between services. And I don't say things just to be critical of others. I say things because with that kind of responsibility, we have to give ourselves to this word. 
And we have to listen to this word. Apart from it, I have nothing to bring to the table. It's a leader in worship. We cannot trade in the word of God for the wisdom of this world. Second, they traded in the purity of God for the pleasures of this world. You follow the thinking here. We'll keep the best animals for ourselves and that way we'll be able to sell them for more money and we'll we'll sacrifice purity there in order for pleasure over here. Now the priest's responsibility was to make sure that Leviticus 22 and other texts like it were held and obeyed and followed. And the priest, somebody brought an offering Diseased or blind, the priest says, sorry, doesn't work. Need your best, best animal you have. Protect the purity of God. Instead, there was this picture of a people who they weren't gonna give up their best, so it was better to give them, to give something, for them to give something instead of nothing at all. And the priest said, okay, we'll take that then, even though it's not the best. We'll compromise the purity of God in worship and we'll offer the sacrifice and that way more people can worship. More people will, I mean, doesn't, doesn't take a lot of sacrifice to bring your injured animal that is no good to you anymore and bring it to the house of God. They had compromised the purity of God in favor of the pleasure of this world. In order for people to worship, Fast forward a couple of thousand years. Do you think it's possible in contemporary worship today to compromise the standards of purity with God in order to enable more people to quote-unquote worship? Do you think it's possible to avoid the tough issues of Scripture, sin and half-hearted commitment to God and his wrath and his justice. Do you think it's possible to avoid those issues because they don't make people feel good and people don't like that? We'll be able to draw more people if we compromise on purity with God. I am convinced that you can draw a crowd with anything in our culture today. And people would say that the sign of God's movement in a church is growing and more and more and more people coming. And the danger there is we begin to do all kinds of things to get more and more people coming, but somewhere along the way, the purity of God is being lost. And I want to remind you, faith family of the church at Brook Hills, God is more interested in the sanctity of his people than the size of our church. He is more concerned about your holiness and my holiness and you and I being conformed into the image of Christ than he is about making us successful according to the standards this world puts on us. They traded in the purity of God for the pleasures of this world. And finally, this is where it just gets thick. They traded in the acceptance of God for the applause of this world. God comes down after giving this picture of your sacrifices you're bringing. He said, try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Powerful rhetorical question. You go to your governor, the one who leads you, and you offer him an injured, mangy animal, and you see if he is insulted or not. You would never offer your governor that. And why are you offering God that? 
The indictment here in Malachi chapter one is they were more devoted to pleasing their governor than they were to pleasing their God. More devoted to the things of this world with their best so that they gave God and his people the leftovers. Now, before we take the sawdust out of their eyes, let's look at the plank in our own eye here. To give the world our best and to give God and his people the leftovers. Researchers for years have continued to show that in the average church, about 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And 80% of the people in the average church do nothing but show up. Now, if those numbers are anywhere near, right, and that's a humbling thought in a room like this, filled with people. I want you to think about this question. What if God, and let's translate this question into contemporary day. What if God said, what if you gave your employer what you give me and my church? Imagine going to your employer to report on what you've done over the last year in the factory. And you get there with your sheet that has your report on it and you hand it to your employer and it has nothing on it. It's a blank sheet. And he looks at you and he says, you've done nothing this last year? And you say back to him, on the contrary, I have showed up in this factory every day it has been open. But you haven't produced anything. No, but I've been here. Imagine he continued, the employer, and asked, well, what are your plans for production and work and your goals for this next year. And imagine you saying to him, well, you turn it over on the paper and you'll see that. And he turns it over and there's nothing there. And the employer says, you have no plans, no goals? And you say, no, I have no plans and no goals, but I will be here every day and I will tell you that I'm here. Would your employer be pleased with that? Of course not. The rhetorical question is answered. Then where in the world have we gotten the idea that God is pleased with that? Where have we gotten the idea that it is okay, it's even good to immerse your life in all the good things of this world and give God and his church leftovers here on the side? You know where this I think it's most scary. I think it's scariest in the way we raise our children in this culture. Because we, we tell our kids that we want them to get good grades. And we want them to be good at sports. And we need to practice to get good at sports. We need to practice to learn this instrument. Or we give them video games that they can learn to get good at. And we tell them, you need to get a good education and you need to be successful and you need to get a, get a good degree from a good college and you need to get a good job and have a good family and make a good living. This is what you need to do and you need to work toward all those things. You need to be educated and athletic and talented. We teach them to do all these things and we immerse them in all these things. We run from all over town, from tennis to gymnastics to soccer to football and it's not that all of these things are bad. The problem is 
what we don't teach them. Because we teach them to do all of these things, but somewhere along the way, we're not teaching them to serve God. And the majority of parents will say in the church, well, I take them to the youth group and I drop them off at the children's rooms. Moms and dad is in this room. The youth minister or the children's minister is not called to disciple your children. You are called, not called, you are commanded to disciple your children. God, help us not to be a generation of fathers who teach our sons to swing a club and swing a bat, but we never teach them how to study the Bible. God, help us to be a generation of mothers who don't just teach her, our daughters how to put on makeup, but teach them how to be a biblical woman with the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Because the tragedy is, in this this current picture, one day our kids are going to stand before the God of the universe and everything we've told them is important and told them to work for is going to burn up in the fire and they're going to be left sitting as beggars before God and it's going to be because of us. Because we thought they needed the applause of this world more than they needed the acceptance of God. This is worship to give your best, your best time, your best resources, your best to God and his church. That is worship. Not to give your best to the things of this world and flip him a coin Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. This is a huge picture of a people who had disregarded the holiness of God and everything was out of perspective and we need to see the corrective. This is a hard word, but it's, it's, it's good. God coming and saying these things to his people, it's good for him to say them so that they do not continue in a route that leads them toward daily, weekly, monthly, defiling the name of God. This is correction when the, the day to be feared is when everything is made out to be just great when it's not, and God does not give us words like this. They disregarded the holiness of God. Finally, they trivialized his greatness and they disregarded his holiness, and they missed out on the purpose of God. They missed out on his purpose. Verse 11 is an incredible verse. We saw it earlier. His name mentioned three different times. My name will be great among the nations. Now listen to this. This is God speaking to a people who he's just said, close your doors. Your worship is useless. Useless fires on my altar. And then he says, my name will be great among the nations. From the rising to the setting of the sun, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Do you catch what he's saying there? God's saying, I'm going to make my glory known in every place on this earth and in every nation on this earth. And whether or not your doors are open or closed, it won't matter. My glory is still going to be made known. This is a, a huge picture of the purpose of God. For him to say, my glory being made known across this globe is going to happen regardless of whether or not you are involved in it. Now, this is so key for us, especially at Brook Hills, 
because we talk a lot about missions and we talk about unreached peoples, which I think we need to talk about. But the danger is in talking about that, sometimes we can get this picture of God. We almost picture God sometimes sitting up on a, a petty throne and wringing his hands, just crying out for somebody to help him impact the world. Somebody will please help me do this. That is not the picture of the God of the universe. The God of the universe has no questions about whether or not his purpose is going to be accomplished or not. And the people we talk about sometimes, the Bedouin people group, five million of them and 40 of them believers, and wanting to do ministry here and live our lives here for their sake over there, if we don't do that, don't think the Bedouin won't hear the gospel. They will hear the gospel. They'll just hear it from someone else. And we will be the ones that miss out on the privilege of making the gospel known to them. But don't think for a second that the Bedouin are dependent on the church at Brook Hills. The church at Brook Hills could fall apart tomorrow and all of our missions go to dust and God's plan to impact nations for his glory is still going to happen. Again, when we come back to this picture, God involves us in his mission not because he needs us but because he loves us. This is the privilege he has put before us. And he's saying, this is the purpose that I am on across this globe, from the rising to the setting of the sun, all across this planet, I am making my glory known. Do you want in on my purpose? And the thought here of the fact that they had squandered the purpose of God to enjoy some extra good meat over here and make an extra dollar on this animal over here. And the picture translated into today, this, this is one of the thoughts that overwhelms me when I think about standing before God to give an account for my life and my sins being covered by the blood of Christ, by his grace and by his mercy. But at the same time, to see on that day all the privileges that God had for me to use me and his purpose and to see how I traded so many of those privileges for trinkets in this world. What a humbling picture. And God says to his priests, all the way back since Leviticus 22, I am making myself known as holy through you and I will make myself known as holy through an obedient people. And he's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to two realizations. One, the greatness of God compels us to give everything. No more half-hearted, meaningless worship. This is a call to repent of giving God half-hearted worship and give him everything. And the greatness of God, second, compels us to give everything and the greatness of God commissions us to go everywhere. Everywhere. I want to show you this picture. You might write that down in your notes. Then go over to, just take a left to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 8. This is an incredible picture in the Old Testament of God's purpose for his people. Listen to this. This is an incredible sight, thought. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 20, through the end of this chapter. Listen to this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Zechariah 8, 20. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come 
And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. Listen to this picture. In those days, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Is that not a great picture? One member of the people of God, one Jewish person. And 10 men, Got the picture, surrounding this one Jew from all languages and nations, grabbing onto his robe, saying, take us with you to the glory of God. We have heard that God is with you and we wanna go there. What an incredible picture of God's design for his people, and not just in the Old Testament, but in the church today, that people across this city would look at our lives and see who our God is. Not as a trivial God, that we pay lip service to like everybody else in Birmingham, but a God who's worthy of all my devotion, worthy of all my trust, and who has all my love and all my surrender. That God, they see in us. They see his holiness reflected in us, and they come to us, and they say, take me to the glory of your God. I want to see your God. And not just in Birmingham, but people in all languages and all nations surrounding the people of God, saying, show us his glory. Show us his glory. This is God's design for our lives, and we do not want to miss out on it. The greatness of God compels us to give everything and commissions us to go everywhere. And they had missed out on his purpose in Malachi chapter one. So you, you come to the end of that picture. They trivialized his greatness and disregarded his holiness and and then missed out on his purpose. And we think, in this room, are we not guilty of the same things? If you are sitting here this morning, and right now you're thinking, Dave, I can't, I can't do it. I find myself immersed in the trivial things of this world, that I grow nonchalant with God and when it comes to his holiness, I try and I try, but I, I struggle here and I struggle there. And I want to be holy, but I just can't do it. And I want to be a part of his purpose. I see what you're saying, what we see in scripture all over the place. But I just, I don't know how that looks in my life. If you are thinking that in this room and the thought comes into your mind, does this mean God won't accept my worship? Realize the contrary. This is exactly the kind of worship God accepts. Isaiah 66, 2, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. The only people in this room who need to be worried based on Malachi chapter one is those of us who have sat here and thought, I don't trivialize his greatness and I've got his holiness and this is not that big a deal for me. That is exactly where these priests were in Malachi chapter one. God, this is not me. Show me where it's me. And the beauty of it is, not one of us can worship God for the greatness that he is due, the glory that he is due, and not one of us can be holy in a way that honors God completely. And not one of us can give ourselves to this purpose completely with total abandon. And that's why Malachi chapter three 
gives us a picture of a messenger of a new covenant that is coming just a book later in the Bible. And the picture of Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, the beauty of it is you and I cannot fathom the greatness of God and God chose to bring his greatness to us. You want to see his greatness? You want to experience his greatness? See and experience Christ. In Christ, he makes worship possible. In Christ, we see the face of God. We experience the greatness of God's person. In Christ, this whole passage is showing us our need for Christ. And in Christ, not only do we not disregard his holiness, but we realize our total, complete lack of holiness in any one of our lives, even the best person in this room, total lack of holiness. And it's in Christ that he makes us holy. And the sinless one takes his sin upon himself, our sin upon himself, and he gives us his holiness and his purity. And in Christ, we worship because in Christ, we reflect the very holiness of Jesus. You and I, think of it, before this God with the holiness of the one who is perfect. In Christ, we reflect his holiness. And in Christ, not only do we experience his greatness and reflect his holiness, but in Christ, we will accomplish his purpose. In Christ, his spirit consumes us, the spirit that wants Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria and the ends of the earth for the glory of God. That spirit is in us, his spirit. He puts his very presence inside of us. And so we see this picture of worship in Malachi chapter one and where they missed it over and over again brings us to the feet of Christ. We need Christ to worship. Now that picture, when we trust in Christ and when we come before God through Christ and we now have the holiness of Christ and we're accomplishing the purpose of Christ, I want you to fast forward maybe in one more place. You've got to see this. If you don't see this, go to 1 Peter. If you don't see this, you'll miss the whole application of this text. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's right after Hebrews and then James. It's right before 2 Peter, if that helps. 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to verse, he says it twice. Circle it or underline it twice. Listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. This is speaking to the church now. As you come to him, 1 Peter 2, 4, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy what? Priesthood. Circle that. Underline it. Be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Same thing down in verse nine. You are a chosen people, a royal what? Priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Don't miss the picture. Old Testament priests, not everybody priests, just few people priests that were given, the Levites, given the privilege, the position of not needing Wealth and power and going out to do this or that, this or that, all of their possession would be God. They would serve him day and night and they would lead in the worship of God. That was the picture of the priest. And then you get to the New Testament. Christ 
comes and he takes our sin upon himself and he dies on the cross and rises from the grave and he ascends into heaven and he says to all of us, now you have a great high priest in heaven who makes the way for all of you to be a royal priesthood, to come before this God, to approach his throne with confidence. Think of it. You and I, allowed to be in the presence of this God with confidence, not cowering back with confidence to stand before this God, knowing that he is making us holy. We are priests, a royal priesthood, not waiting week by week for the worship of God, living the worship of God. God help us in light of this great privilege, which is far deeper than Malachi 1 ever could have dreamed of, this great privilege, a royal priesthood in this room of followers of Christ. God help us with this great privilege never to trivialize his greatness and never to disregard his holiness and his word and his purity as paling in comparison to the things of this world. And God help us to accomplish his purpose. This is what worship is all about. Experiencing the greatness of God through Christ, and reflecting the holiness of God through Christ in all of our lives and every facet of our lives and accomplishing the purpose of God through Christ. It is so much deeper than sitting in a chair and attending an event. This is true worship. And it's worship that pleases God. It's worship that honors God. It's worship that causes him to say, open the doors and come out, not close the doors and go home. God help us never to be a church that insults God with how we worship. And so I want to give us an opportunity. This has been a heavy text. It's been a heavy text to study and to preach. And I think we need some time corporately as a faith family with God to reflect on the gravity of what we've seen. And so I'm gonna ask these guys to come up and they're gonna lead us by singing over us for just a few minutes. And they're gonna sing. And I want to invite you to pray. And, and I wanna ask you during this time if you would just not take this as the opportunity to leave early. I know that there is a tendency to do that and there are reasons that folks do that, but I really would like to guard the preciousness of this moment as a faith family. And so I want to invite us all across this room over the next few moments to reflect on the things we've seen in Malachi 1 and to reflect on the greatness of God, to reflect on our need for Christ and you do that, whether it's sitting in your chair, whether that's getting on your knees where you are, I'm fine if you flood the aisles on your knees and faces before God. Or flood the front on our knees and faces before God. I want us to see the greatness of God and not make the mistake of trivializing it. And then to reflect on holiness and where God is making you holy and where you need to spend time in confession and worship and let him purify you through Christ. Some of you, for the first time, the only way 
come into the presence of this God is through the blood of Christ. And some of you who have never trusted in Christ, truly, you've done the religious deal, but you've never come face to face with the greatness of God through Christ. And I want to invite you during this time to, for the first time in your life, say, Christ, I need you to make me holy. I'm trusting in you. And all across this room, I want us to pray, have some time in reflection on this word that we've seen, what it means for our lives. And then after they've sung this song over us, then they're going to go right into leading us in a song of praise and adoration. And I want to invite you to turn your mind's attention and your heart's affection completely to the greatness of God. And let's, as a faith family, give him glory and honor that he is due through singing about how he is our king. And then we'll continue in worship after that. But over the next few moments, I want to invite you to pray, whether it's where you are, down here at the front, all throughout the aisles or on the sides. Then we'll sing, and then we'll pray again together. Father, I, I pray for the next few minutes that you would guard us from useless fires, that you would guard us from wasting our time in your time. God, that you would give us all across this room a keen sense of your greatness and that you would show us what that means for our lives. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We want our lives to sing, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So we pray that you would purify us and mold us during these few moments we have in worship. Well, 2020 has been certainly a difficult year for many individuals all throughout the world. And in light of the suffering around us, by God's grace, Radical remains committed to mobilizing and equipping the church to meet urgent spiritual and physical needs through resources, events, training, tools for mission strategy, and opportunities for urgent engagement. We have been so blessed by the donors that have kept Radical's mission alive, and we come to you now in 2020 asking to make your life count for what matters in eternity and be a part of this mission of getting the gospel to the nations by giving to Radical today. Our mission remains the same. Radical exists to serve the church for the cause of Christ, to glorify God by making disciples and multiplying churches among all nations. Lord willing, in 2021, we will see even more gospel-advancing projects and efforts funded through Radical's urgent initiative among the hardest-to-reach people and places. Gather with tens of thousands of believers worldwide for the 21st Secret Church and host a variety of new events, large and small, to train and equip believers for global disciple-making, including the first radical gap year students into our nine-month intensive training program, as well as launching a massive and groundbreaking data tool called Stratus to help the global church make the wisest possible decisions on how to take the gospel to the hardest-to-reach places. So we're committed to these efforts more than ever, and we feel the Holy Spirit leading us into this mission with fervor. At Radical, we consider it a great privilege to stand with you, our donors, our listeners, our community, our shoulder to shoulder in this call. If you would like to give to help the mission of Radical, just visit Radical.net and choose Donate. And thank you for partnering with us on this global mission for Jesus. Well, that's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us at Radical.net.